Well, as we come to God's word today, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, reveals yourself to us in your word written, but most profoundly in your word made flesh in the Lord Jesus. And as we begin this journey through Mark's account of Jesus' life, we pray, Lord God, that you would really speak to our hearts, that we would be shaped by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it was uh, 1987 or 1988, uh, I was working as the New South Wales rep for Tear Fund and I was invited to speak at a men's dinner for a small independent church in northern Sydney. Now, most of the men there were way older than me, but when I sat down to dinner, I saw that I was across from the only two men there who were about my age. And to strike up conversation, I asked them what they did for work One of them said he was a guitarist and the other one a drummer. Oh, I asked, would you have been in any bands that I would have heard of? As the guitarist answered, listing bands that were household names to me, like the Bushwhackers and Dragon, uh, I think he saw my jaw dropping. Uh, He leant over gently and uh, said, it was sincere humility, I'm Tommy Emmanuel. Now, for those of you who don't know that name, Tommy Emmanuel is arguably the greatest guitarist that Australia has ever produced. Uh, Even back then, he had an international reputation and he's played for greats like Jimmy Barnes, John Farnham, Tina Turner. Uh, The the night that I met him at that dinner, he had to leave early to collect some award for his brilliant guitaring. And I'd actually seen him play with the Bushwhackers, but I hadn't recognised him sitting across from me. Now, this encounter was both embarrassing and encouraging. Embarrassing because I'd failed to recognise guitar greatness, but encouraging because through this encounter, I discovered that this great one had recognised the much greater one. Tommy Emmanuel may be one of the greatest living guitarists, but he is also a very humble follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognising the identity of a guitar legend is in the end not that important, but recognising the identity of the Lord of the universe is. And as we embark on a journey through the Gospel of Mark, that really is the essence of what Mark is wanting us to do, to recognise the identity of King Jesus. Who is Jesus? That's the most important question. Is he who he claimed to be? the Messiah, the the Son of God? Is he worth listening to? And how should we respond to him? I want to bring that question to court today as we begin this journey through Mark's Gospel. I want to apply courtroom techniques to the question of identity in the introduction to Mark's account of Jesus. Like any court of law, I want to hear the witnesses, assess the evidence and decide on a verdict about Jesus and his claim to be king. There's no doubt how Mark sees Jesus. In the first 15 verses of his account of Jesus' life, he introduces us to seven witnesses who point to Jesus as king. Let me run through them with you. The first is the writer himself, Mark. See how he begins? The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
That's the story that Mark is writing, an announcement of good news, or literally, a gospel. This is the word that would be used of the announcement that a king has arrived. The ruler of the land was passing through. It will be trumpeted as momentous news. Mark is announcing the arrival of a king, and not just any king, but the Messiah, the the saviour king whom God had promised to bring to his people. This is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. And more than that, this saviour king is also the son of God. At the very least, that means that he was special to God, chosen by God for a high purpose. But as this story goes on, we'll see that it means much more than that. So there's the first witness, Mark himself, who sees the coming of Jesus as momentous news that needs announcing, who identifies Jesus as God's king and God's son. The next witness is Isaiah the prophet, or actually not just Isaiah, also Malachi. Verse 3 is quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, but verse 2 is from Malachi 3.1. And their representation of all the Old Testament prophets. As one, the prophets had had pointed to the Saviour King who would come to God's people, Israel, and bring to the world uh, a new era of salvation. So important was this King's arrival that a, a messenger would come before him to prepare the way. Through Malachi, God said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah foresaw a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Mark quotes the prophets here to make it clear what is happening. Even prophets long dead stand as witnesses to Jesus. He is the one that they promised long ago. The next witness is that messenger that Malachi spoke of, the voice in the desert of whom Isaiah spoke, the one who comes to prepare the way for the Lord, John the Baptist. Like Elijah before him, John lived in the desert dressed in camel hair and leather belt and lived off locusts and wild honey. And like Elijah, he called on the people to return to God, to repent. His emphasis was on preparing the way for the Messiah, ritually washing the people sullied by sin. It was about admitting you were going the wrong way, turning away from wickedness and seeking God's forgiveness. Malachi had said Elijah would return to do just that before the Messiah came. And so he did in John, whose whole ministry was to be a witness to the one who would come after him. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The next witness is that Holy Spirit with whom he would baptise. 
In verse 9, Jesus came down to join in the national preparation by being baptised by John. And in verse 10, we read that this baptism was different. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is confirmation from heaven. He is the one John was preparing the way for, the one who would baptise with the Spirit. Uh, We see as the Spirit descends upon him to imbue him with spiritual power. And at the same time, another heavenly witness joins him, a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us if that voice or the dove-like appearance of the Spirit were were public or private revelation to Jesus and maybe John, but it matters little. The point Mark is making is that the confirmation was made. The three persons of the Trinity acted in concert as the Spirit descended upon Jesus and the Father spoke to confirm that this was indeed his Son. He echoes the words of both Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, confirming Jesus to be the promised Saviour King, the Messiah and servant of God who would save God's people. The amazing thing is that as Mark continues the story, even God's enemy, Satan, acts as a witness to Jesus as the Spirit sends Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Uh, Why does this confrontation happen? Why would Satan bother? Because Jesus is God's son, come as king, and Satan wants to divert him from God's plan. Indeed, if you, you read Matthew's account of that temptation in Matthew 4, you'll see that Satan's whole focus is to get Jesus to presume on his status as the son of God. The fact that Jesus resisted that temptation makes it clear that Satan was right in his assessment of his identity, but wrong to think that he could tempt God's son. Jesus is the son of God who can't be lured away from his father's plan. Satan's attempt to lure him away from that actually proves the point. So finally, we come to the last witness, Jesus himself. As as we read in verse 14, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near in Jesus. The good news of the king's arrival can be announced. It's time to turn from sin and to trust in God's saviour king. Jesus is the king. Uh, That's what all the witnesses are saying all confirming Mark, confirming Mark himself that this is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what is the evidence to support the witnesses' claim? Uh, we see that as Jesus' ministry gets underway in the second half of the chapter. Uh, at every turn, the, he demonstrates the authority of a king. Uh, it begins in the synagogue in Capernaum in verse 21. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. He taught them as one who had authority. The rabbis, they were used 
they were used to. They didn't show any authority. They would refer to this expert and, and that writing. They would build up an argument relying on other authorities. But Jesus wasn't like that. He used to say things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he spoke as one who had authority, one whose word meant something, one who ought to be listened to. It stood out to the people in the synagogue that day and it stood out to many others as he began to attract a following. Exhibit A, Jesus taught with the authority of one who was in charge. Even before the crowd had responded to that piece of evidence, another thrust itself upon them. As Jesus was speaking, a a demon-possessed man called out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit uh, shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Uh, The crowd recognise Jesus' authority on a new level. What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. He, He doesn't just speak to human beings as one in charge. He speaks to the spiritual world in the same way. Even evil spirits do what he says. No wonder news of this man began to spread like wildfire. He had real spiritual power. Exhibit B, he ordered demons around. Jesus is not long out of the synagogue that same day when we see another display of his authority. With his new little band of disciples, he goes back to the home of two of them, Simon, whom Jesus later called Peter, and his brother Andrew. Verse 30 takes up the story. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Now Mark tells the story with no wasted words. Jesus' power over illness is clear. Uh, She was unwell and Jesus healed her. Straight away, she was strong enough to get back into the kitchen and start getting dinner. Now, that's extraordinary, isn't it? If you've had a fever, it takes it out of you. And when the fever goes, you have to take things easy to start with. But not here. Jesus not only heals her, he gives her instant strength. It's not surprising then that as soon as the sun set to signal the end of the Sabbath rest, the the whole town turns up at Simon and Andrew's door. News is spreading fast. Anyone who is sick, anyone who is oppressed by evil spirits, they all make their make straight way for this man. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. Exhibit C, authority not only over people and spirits, but authority over illness as well. What happens next shows the source of this authority. Verse 35 Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus had been flat out the day before, from the the synagogue to Simon and Andrew's house, healing and exorcising until late in the night. Now, if it were me, I think I'd opt for a nice lie-in the next morning. I wouldn't budge from bed until I had to, but not Jesus. 
He's up well before dawn, making sure he gets the solitude that he craves. Uh, He makes for a solitary place, literally a desert place, somewhere where he can be alone with his father and he prays. Here is the source of his power. And here is further evidence of his sonship. He wants to talk to his father. He needs to talk to his father. He needs to get perspective on where things are heading. He needs to align himself with his father's will. Surely this points to who he is. God's king, God's Christ, God's son. Exhibit D, prayer that shows an intimate connection with God. But they come after him. As the sun rises and the disciples awake, they realise that the sick and demon-possessed haven't gone away and they, they're still streaming uh, at, at the door. So they, they look for Jesus and they realise he's gone and they set out to look for him. Verse 37 takes up the story. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. Jesus uh, could be a small-town hero extraordinaire if he'd just hang around, return to the house and heal some more, but he has just refocused with the Father and he knows his mission. It's not limited to a few healings in Capernaum. It's not just about helping needy people. He has a larger mission than that. He has a wider canvas to paint on. He has come primarily to announce the good news, to let people know that the kingdom of God is near, that the king has come, that it's time to turn away from sin and to trust in God. So he says it's time to move on, to, to get to other places that need to hear. This town has heard. They have seen his kingship displayed with power. Sure, there are more people in need here, but there are people in need everywhere. His mission is not really about healing and exorcism. His mission is to show and tell the kingdom is near, to announce himself with word and deed as the promised saviour king. So let's move on. And they did. He travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Exhibit E, his mission was the Messiah's mission. So now we've heard the witnesses And we've seen the evidence. What's the verdict? Mark presents the appropriate verdict in the middle of the chapter between the witnesses and the evidence. Just after Jesus had begun his preaching, calling for repentance and faith, as Jesus calls a few fishermen to follow him. Verses 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. Now it's told with remarkable economy, but this is a powerful story. As Mark presents it, Jesus saw these men, called them, and they followed him at once, without delay. And that's actually a favourite expression of Mark's. It's often translated out of our English versions, but the old authorised version used to translate 
translate it straightway. And it gives a real sense of urgency to the tale that Mark is telling. And it's throughout the chapter. It's actually the same word that he introduced when he, when he quotes Isaiah's voice in the desert saying, make straight paths for him. But then in, in verse 9, when Jesus was baptised, straightway as Jesus was coming out of the water, the Spirit descended. And after his baptism in verse 12, straightway the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And when his ministry began in Capernaum in 21, straightway on the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue. And in 23, straightway the demon-possessed man in the synagogue came to him. By 28, the news about him went straightway everywhere. And in 29, when they left the synagogue, straightway they went to Simon and Andrew's place. And with Simon's mother ill, straightway they told Jesus about her. Do you get the sense of urgency in the constant use of that word? Well, it's embedded into his first disciples' response. As in verse 18, straightway Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. And in verse 20, straightway Jesus called James and John and they left and followed him. Here is the verdict as Mark presents it, seen in the response of these four fishermen. Ultimately, this is the only correct response when we recognise who Jesus is. At once, they left their nets and followed him. They left behind their livelihood. They left behind their families. They left behind the security of the past. They left behind their future plans and dreams. And straightway, at once, without delay, they followed him as king. The call is basically what Jesus called for in verse 15 to repent and believe, to leave behind the old life and throw your lot in with Jesus. This is Mark's verdict about Jesus. He is the one to be followed, the King, the Son of God, who displays his authority and calls people to follow him. So in the end, the question of identity is overtaken by a more important question of allegiance, a question that points at you and me rather than Jesus. You see, the question of identity is settled. Mark has no doubt who Jesus is. As he began, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Saviour King whose arrival Mark is announcing. So many witnesses, so much evidence is there. The verdict is clear. The kingdom of God has come near in Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. Leave behind the old life of sin and throw in your lot with Jesus. Follow him, whatever the cost. The question that remains is for you and me. Who do you follow? Jesus, the one who came announcing God's kingdom and to whom so many bear witness as God's king, including God himself and even God's enemy, Satan? the one who demonstrates his kingly authority with power over people, over disease, even over evil spirits, who has an intimate relationship with his Father in heaven and showed a clear focus on the Messiah's mission. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. He said, come, follow me. Have you heard that call? What are you doing about it? If you've never responded to Jesus' call before, 
Today is the day to do it. He is God's saviour king and he is calling you into his kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. The king has come. Follow him. And if you've responded to the call before, how are you doing at following the king? Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed him. James and John left their father and the family business. What have you left to follow Jesus? Or are you still trying to hold on to it? There's so much to hold us back in following Jesus. It may be human relationships, the love of family and friends that you don't want shaken by the controversy that comes when you follow Jesus. It may be the comfortable life, the nice house, the the good income, the, the luxury items that encumber you as you try to follow the king. It may be an easy attitude to the demands of following Jesus, a refusal to repent that comes from a denial of what you're doing is wrong. It may be some anger or resentment that you won't let go of, someone you refuse to forgive, maybe even anger at God for some disappointment or pain. There are so many things that hold us back, so many things that tug at us. What is it that you need to let go of, to leave behind, as it were, so that you can really follow the king? I, as much as you, need to hear the call of King Jesus afresh today. Will you take his words seriously with me? The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Come, follow me. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you came, you made it very clear who you were. And we want to bow before you now and acknowledge you, you as our king our saviour. We want to acknowledge you as the very son of God who has come to deliver us from our own sin. And Lord, we we recognise that while we may have many years ago repented, turned around and, and sought to follow you, that there are so many things that hold us back. So we pray, Lord God, that you would open our eyes to see those things that we need to change, that you would open our hearts to gladly receive you, to gladly follow you, to gladly acknowledge you as king. And so, Lord God, we pray that we would glorify you in all that we do. Amen.